Well, good morning again, and welcome again, and again, I am Pastor Trevor. You can tell I normally don't do announcements, so I got to stick to my normal routine up here, lest I get thrown off. Um, I did forget one announcement. Uh, we do have our regular uh, potluck lunch uh, today uh, that we have on second and fourth Sundays, so please, after the service, after this quick fellowship time that we normally do, join us downstairs for some food and uh, more uh, fellowship. Before we begin this morning's message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for the moment that is before us. Thank you for allowing us to gather again to hear your word. And we ask that we would hear your word, that you would provide for us the wisdom that leads to everlasting life, that we would embrace it, that we would submit ourselves to it, that your spirit would cut us where necessary but encourage us, comfort, and heal us where necessary as well. So help us to be focused so that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified so that as we go out from here, Father, we would glorify you in all that we do. And we ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we spoke of the Adam problem in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. We saw by the words of Psalm 8 that mankind is the pinnacle of creation crowned with glory and honor with all things being subjected to mankind. Yet we also saw the problem. We saw the gulf, the gap, the expanse that exists between the teaching of Psalm 8 and our current reality, our current experience, because we don't experience rule over all things. In fact, we experience anything but rule. But it's not our current reality because of the fall of Genesis 3. However, Despite that, God's will, God's purpose for mankind will not fail. Therefore, God intervened, as verse 9 showed us last week, that through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus became the anticipated Son of Man to deliver the Son of Men from their sin and from death. Jesus, he is the true Adam, the second Adam, the final Adam. He is the fulfiller of God's will, for he is, as Paul says elsewhere, our yes and our amen. Today's passage, Hebrews 2, 10 and 18, which if you have not turned there, please uh, turn there. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the chairs. If you don't own a Bible, please take one. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, we will have the passage on the screen but again, it is always good to have the passage in front of you so you can see the context and you can refer back to the verses um, as you need to. So our passage uh, will further explain why it is by Jesus that mankind will rule the world to come and how this is possible. In short, verses 10 through 18 explain exactly how the grace of God that's mentioned in verse 9 operates in achieving our deliverance as well as telling us the benefits of such effective grace. So let's begin by reading our passage, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, and then we'll go back to verse 10 and begin to look at the author's argument. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So let's go back to uh, verse 10. I won't reread it since we just read it. There are two things that we need to understand about verse 10. What was fitting for God to do? And is the author speaking of the actions of the Son or of the Father? Let's consider that question first and the first question second. So is it, is it, excuse me, so the star at the, at the, the he at the start of the verse, when he talks about for it is fitting that he, who is it? Is it fitting for the Son or is it fitting for the Father? It's for the Father. If we go back to verse 9, we see God being referenced in regard to his gracious will of permitting his Son to taste death for everyone. And the Son is later referenced here in verse 10 as the founder of our salvation, which God the Father made perfect through suffering. So it's not the Son making himself, that doesn't come out um, in the Greek here, it's, it's God, it's the other person of the Trinity, it's the Father who makes the Son perfect through suffering. But also consider how the author describes the Father here. For who, he says, for whom and by whom all things exist. This echoes Paul's teaching in Romans 11.36 about God, where Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The point being that history and the future that will be history exists for God. And it exists not in an arbitrary manner either, as if God is a witness or he somehow manipulates time and history to his will. Because all things, as they exist for him and they bring him glory, all things exist by him. God is both the ends and he is also the means of history. As one commentator puts it, he is the goal and the agent of history. Our lives, they are not for ourselves. Our theology, our understanding of life, of why we exist, our understanding of reality must be theocentric, that is God-centered, not self-centric, not man-centered. It can't be humanity-centered, it can't be environmentally-centered, or whatever it may be, it must be God-centered. He is the reason for all things. He is the reason all of us exist. Now that we understand who the he is in our verse, let us answer the next question. What exactly is it fitting that he does? Or what exactly is proper for him to do? He says that in bringing many sons to glory, the founder, the archetype, the pioneer, the, the pathfinder, the originator would need to be perfect. And that makes sense. Right, that, that God would have the one who makes it possible for man to enter into his perfect, holy glory, that the one who makes that possible, that he himself would be perfect. The one that would undo the corruption and the fallenness of the first Adam would succeed where the first Adam failed, that he would be perfect in all his ways. 
But what isn't so obvious is the method by which the one, the son, is made perfect. He's made perfect through suffering. This is a point that the author has already mentioned previously in verse 9. Remember, the son is crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. But how does this make the son perfect? Because without the suffering, he can't be our archetype. He can't be our substitute. He can't be our priest, not perfectly anyway. And we need a perfect priest. And this is where the author goes to this argument in verses 11 through 18. So we're going to go ahead and look at verse 11. But before we go there, let me talk about the phrase, sons of glory. When the author here is talking about the sons of glory, he's talking about the crowning of men and women with glory and honor, and how the world to come will be subjected to them. It's to the sons of glory, not to the sons of wrath, but the sons of glory that the world is subjected to, all of which is done by the basis of the sons' glory. Now, if you want later to uh, reference Romans 8, 12 through 17 for further explanation, I would uh, commend that to you. Paul does a good job of explaining, essentially, what sons of glory is. He doesn't use the term there, but he's talking about the same thing. That's Romans 8, 12 through 17. Now, let's look at verse 11, and let's reread it. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. For Jesus, the sanctifier, and the sons of glory, that's those who are sanctified, they are one. And, and the Greek source isn't in there. It's just they are one. But that's the intention there. That's the context. It's what it means. They, they all come from one place. They share the same source as they have the same father. Now, some argue, some debate, well, who, who's, who's the father that the author is referencing to? Who is the source? Is it Adam? I don't think it's Adam. Adam's not mentioned anywhere in, in, in Hebrews. It could be Abraham. Abraham's mentioned in verse 16, and, and that could, it, it could work. It still fits the, the point of the text. But however, Abraham hasn't been introduced yet. So I believe it's still God the Father, because he's the one who's made the Son uh, perfect. He's the one who's made the sanctifier perfect. So they share the same source. But not all share in this unity. Not all share in the same source with Jesus. Only the sons of glory, only those who are sanctified, have this shared source with Christ. The profane and the unsanctified do not share in this commonality. This is a clear distinction that exists within humanity. There are two groups of people in all of history, the sons of glory and the sons of wrath. The sanctified, the unsanctified, the saved and the unsaved, not saved. This is a point that the author will come back to a couple more times, just in our passage alone this morning. This unity with his brothers, however, does not erase the distinctions of Jesus. Jesus is the one who sanctifies and does not need to be sanctified. The author will speak about that again later in Hebrews. But we are the ones needing to be sanctified. In Leviticus, so we, now we're starting to see the Levitical code come to light, being contrasted as to why this is a better covenant, a better way, and why the Son is the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. In Leviticus, it's Yahweh who sanctifies, it's not the priest. All right, just a few examples, and there are many Leviticus, but Leviticus 28, keep my statutes and do them. I, Yahweh, I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Leviticus 21.8, you shall sanctify him. Now there, Yahweh is talking about you, the priest, shall ritually sanctify him. But remember, the ritual practices of sanctification don't actually sanctify the people. 
right? It's, it's God, it's Yahweh who actually does it. For he offers the bread of your God, he shall be holy to you, for I, Yahweh, who sanctify you, am holy. Leviticus 21, 15, um, for I, Yahweh, who sanctifies him. So over and over again, it is Yahweh, it is God who actually does the sanctifying, the true sanctification. The sanctification is ultimately done by, by, by faith in God. It is not the priest. The sanctifying work of Jesus is a main point of this epistle to the Hebrews, and it is part of our confidence of to why we can go to him in our sin, because he is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who makes us clean. Nothing here makes us clean. He is the one who makes us clean. And we know that since he is doing the work and he is who he is, we have confidence that he will see it through. Since Jesus is the one who sanctifies the sons of glory, and since the sons of glory share the same source, the same father as Jesus, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So let's look at verses 12 to 13 and see what of the Old Testament that the author pulls to support this point that Jesus is not ashamed to call the sons of glory his brothers. Verse 12, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So the first quote here is from Psalm 22, verse 22. Now, Psalm 22, if you're not familiar, it's what Jesus references on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, what's going on on the cross is not the Son being separated from the Father, right? We can't separate an unchanging, a triune God. He stays with the Father. What Jesus is doing is he's referencing Psalm 22. And what we need to understand is that when you pull a verse from the Old Testament, they didn't treat it like we treat Twitter, right? We don't pull a verse and go, it has no context, it exists in a vacuum. No, when you pull a verse, you pull everything with it, right? You pull all the meat, you pull all the flesh, you pull the entire thing with it, not just that verse. You don't, just don't look at the verse and go, well, what came before, what came after, does it matter? No, when Jesus pulls Psalm 22, verse 1, he's pulling the psalm with it. When the author of Hebrews pulls from the Old Testament, he's pulling the entire context of that verse with it, not just that verse, Psalm 22 is perhaps one of the most well-known Messianic psalms, especially in the first century. When we look at the passion narratives of, of Mark and John, who specifically uh, bring this out, and you've got to think about this. When Jesus is on the cross, dying, suffocating, it takes effort to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to say it loud enough to where people not only hear you, but understand you. So there's intention there from Jesus. Mark, he starts in Mark 15, 24, he actually goes backwards. He pulls verse 18 from Psalm 22, and then in verse 29 of Mark 15, he pulls verse 7, and then in Mark 15, 34, he ends with verse 1. So the Jew, as they're hearing the gospel of Mark, they're hearing, that's Psalm 22, verse 18. That's Psalm 22, verse 7. That's Psalm 22, that's Psalm 22. And when you think of Psalm 22, it's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm of immense anguish and lament, but it's a psalm of hope and encouragement and praise. You would almost think that Jesus on the cross, as he's reciting those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not only expressing his anguish that he's experiencing, but his hope and his trust and his praise as well. 
And the verse that the author pulls from Psalm 22, verse 22, that is the turning point of the psalm. The first 18 verses is all about pain and the experience. Verse 19, it's the Messiah lifting up his request. And then verse 22, you see the turn in the spirit of the Messiah. He says, I will praise, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. So the author is pulling a verse that not only speaks of the sons, uh, speaking the name of his, of his father to his brothers and praising him, but he's pulling a verse that does so in the context of suffering. And as we've talked about, this is the context of Hebrews. The son is exalted. The son is who he is. He's made perfect through suffering. So it makes sense that he pulls a verse, a psalm that is about suffering and about trusting God in the midst of this suffering for his purpose here. The next two quotes come from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Now, that middle quote uh, where he says, uh, I will put my trust in him, it is possible to find that or some form of that in many places in the Old Testament. However, the context, uh, I think, supports Isaiah 8, 17, as well as that the next quote comes from Isaiah 8, 18. So the proximity and context, these last two quotes are pulled together from Isaiah 8, 17, 18. You can see it for yourself. I won't read it, uh, but it is there um, on the screen uh, for you. And if you know the context of Isaiah 8, it makes sense. If we back up to Isaiah 7, we have King Ahaz, right? He's, he's ruling over the kingdom of Judah uh, and the king of Syria and the king of Israel, right? We, we preached through kings recently. They come up to Jerusalem to wage war. And King Ahaz, he's panicked, he's fearful, the people are fearful. So Yahweh sends word to his prophet Isaiah to give King Ahaz comfort, to encourage him. Don't panic, don't fear, because he's going to send Assyria upon Syria and Israel. But not only that, though, unfortunately, in that action, Assyria is going to come into Judah, but they won't touch Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be preserved uh, through that. Then in Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11, God sends word to his prophet, to Isaiah himself, again, to encourage Isaiah, not to call conspiracy what others call conspiracy. Don't fear, but fear Yahweh himself. For those who do will find refuge and in, in, in sanctuary in him. And then in verses 17 through 18, Isaiah records his response to God's word, where he says, I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs importance in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, whereas these verses in their immediate context speak of Isaiah and his trust in Yahweh in the midst of suffering and adversity, and the children given to him are speak to the two children that, Isaiah, um, that God gave to Isaiah as signs not only to Isaiah but to the people, the author uses these verses and applies them to Christ. For if the prophet, if the man, Isaiah, is able to trust God in such dire circumstances, certainly the Son of God can do so as well. So in utilizing these verses from the Old Testament, the author is highlighting that Jesus in his humanity, better yet, Jesus in his suffering, trusts the Father. He trusts him in the face of death and great adversity, which as we know in Philippians 2.8 is a trust that leads him to death on a cross. But it's not only Jesus himself, right? It's his brothers and sisters. 
It's the sons of glory as well. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Because his brothers, his sisters, they trust God in the midst of suffering. And they all come from God. And because they all come from God, because they all trust God, they are all sanctified. Therefore, there's no reason for Jesus to be ashamed to call them brothers, to call them sisters. But note the distinction that we see here between the sons of glory, of whom Christ has no shame to call brothers, and those who are not the sons of glory. Right? To be a son of glory, you must trust the Father. That's why he says, and again, not only I, but the children that God has given me will also put their trust in God. So if you don't trust God with your suffering, if you're unwilling to trust him as the son, Jesus trusted him, you have no share in the glory of the Father. But if you do, though you may struggle at times to do so, and, and let's be honest, there are times in our faith when we're like, I'm too weak for this, I don't have the spine, my knees can't stand under this weight, I have too much doubt, I struggle, I want to believe, I want to trust, but my flesh is too much for me. That's okay. Your will is what wants to trust God. But if your will is like, no, I'm done trusting, that's an issue. You may not be good at trusting God, but if you desire to trust God, that is what matters. That's where you can say, Father, help me with my unbelief. I believe, help me. I trust you, but boy, I am not good with following through. The fire, the flame, the heat of the furnace, it's too much. I'm not even in it yet, but I can feel it from a distance, and I don't want to go there. That's where we pray for help. And if you do that, then you are blessed. You're able to call Jesus your brother, for you are a son of glory. You are a daughter of the king. As Romans 10:11 says, Paul writes, everyone who believes in him, that's in Christ, will not be put to shame. There is no shame for the believer. Don't, don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to the world when they say, oh, you say you believe in Christ, but I know your sins. I know what you have done. I know what you will probably do in the future. You can't change. You can't wash the blood off of you, the guilt off of you. And they're right. You can't do it, but he can and he has if you trust in him. He's our great high priest. He's our advocate. The chain of trust and being holy, us being sanctified, that cannot be divided, it cannot be separated. You either trust and are holy or you are not. Another way to put it, you are either a son of glory who is saved or you are a child of wrath who is damned. But always remember that for those of you who are children of wrath, there's always the opportunity. As long as you're breathing, God's grace is upon you for the moment, for now. Take hold of it before it's too late. Now let us consider this blessing more as described by the author in verses 14 through 15. He writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 14 is the linchpin of our passage as the whole passage highlights the humanity of Christ. But verse 14 brings out the main effect of the Son being fully human and having suffered for humanity. Since the children, when the author speaks of the children, he's referencing Jesus and the sons of glory. It's, it's all of us. Since we share in the flesh and blood, 
Jesus willfully partook. He experienced the same things as his siblings. And he did so for a purpose. It wasn't merely so he could be a fine example. It wasn't just so he could be a great teacher. But it was to destroy the devil and his power over death. The devil and his demons, we need to understand, they have no power over you. So don't pretend that they do, because they don't. And don't act like you're the one who disarms them. You don't bind the devil. Jesus is the one who binds them. Jesus is the one who has done it already. He has destroyed the power of the devil. Paul says this in Colossians 2.15, talking about the crucifixion of Christ. He said, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the rulers and authorities there are the spiritual powers of this realm. It's an expression that Paul uses often to reference the um, spiritual powers of this realm. They're disarmed against us. There's nothing they can do to you. And you can't, the power is not in you to do anything to them. The power is in Christ and he has already disarmed them. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 12, 29 when he has been accused of being a servant of the devil. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he dies. He binds the devil. In order for Jesus to bring many sons to glory, he must first free, from, he must free them from their bondage to this age and the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil. And he does so by becoming like them. He must become like the one that he seeks to save. So he takes on flesh. He shares in the flesh and blood. And that's just a way of saying he shares our DNA. He shares everything that entails. He experiences the hunger, the aches, the sweat, the fatigue. He went, he went through puberty himself, sickness. When he was born, he was a crying baby on that night. Right? It's good for a baby to cry at birth. It would have been odd if Jesus came out and he was silent. He was wholly human, fully human. He cried, he wet his diaper, he did all of that. He was tempted as well. Most importantly, he experienced death. And he did so, again, for a reason. This wasn't just like some curiosity experiment that the Son of God wanted to know what it's like to be man. He did so in order to deliver the sons of God who were enslaved to the fear of death. Now, fear of death not only causes us to compromise our beliefs and actions, especially like in immediate moments. For example, if somebody pulls out a gun to your head and says, do this or do that, in that moment, the fear of death is upon you to, to make a decision on how you're going to act in that moment. But fear of death impacts how we live from day to day if we are wise, right? If we remember that there is death awaiting us. And for most of history, mankind was very aware that death is upon us, everywhere. At any given moment, you could die, and people were fearful of it because it meant judgment. Judgment was coming. When you die, it's over, and you're going to be judged. Nowadays, though, it's a little different. Ecclesiastes 7.4, Solomon writes, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or amusement see what the author solomon is saying is that by going to a funeral by seeing the dead body in the casket 
recognizing the coldness, the lack of life, you go, that person whom I've seen breathing, talking, doing this or that, they're gone. The time I had with them went much quicker than I thought, and I'm next. At some point, that's going to be me in that casket or in their urn or somewhere, but I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be lifeless, and it's going to come sooner rather than later. Death will come for all of us sooner rather than later. We like to think it's going to come later, but it ain't. It's going to come to you sooner. So there's wisdom to ponder death and to know it's knocking on your door. However, this isn't what we have in America. See, we have the heart of fools that ignore the reality of death. We live in a time where we are blessed with prosperity, with the ability to extend life, to prevent death. We're able to extend our lifespans, to recover from serious injuries and illnesses. So we often don't think about death. Even in the church, we don't think about death as often as we should think about death. Instead, we sedate our souls with the entertainments and amusements of this age, whether it be social media. I don't like quiet in my mind, so I keep scrolling. As long as my mind's on something else rather than the silence of this life causes me to ponder my existential reality, I'm good. Or it's sports. If you're a Green Bay Packer fan, you're always thinking, hoping for next year is going to be our year. And I don't know how you do it, but every year you get on that hamster wheel again. This is going to be it. Roger's going to win another one, maybe, right? We'll see. Others of us, it's streaming services. It could be activities like our hobbies, youth sports. It could be our careers. We're chasing that next big sale. We love the hunt. And so we occupy ourselves with the activities of this world rather than keeping in mind what is in front of us. And so we think there's time to repent. We think that there's time to order our lives accordingly. I can go to church next week. I don't need to go to church this week. Green Bay backers, they got a game in London this morning. It's on at, what, 8.30. I don't need to go to church. I got next week. Do you? I don't need to go to life group. I don't need to make my, t- I don't need to open my schedule to be more involved with the body. I'll do that when I retire. Do you live for retirement? Who says you're going to retire? Maybe the next pandemic is going to be an actual pandemic and it'll come upon us and half of you are gone in one year. You don't know. You have no idea what's going to happen. You can be 19 and your heart can just stop beating. It happens. Whether you're vaccinated or not, it can happen. So we must not live this way, for a fool thinks that way and a fool lives that way. We, who are sons of glory, we can think about death. We can ponder death. We can constantly remind ourselves there's a day coming when I am going to die and be judged, and we can do so with confidence because we have a great high priest before the throne of God above, like we just sang. So we can do so, one, in hopeful expectation, not only that we're reminded I will be judged, but I have a priest who stands before God on my behalf, but also that this world, all the suffering that comes with it, it's going to pass. So we kind of anticipate death, right? It's like, if, if it hastens me in going into glory, well, well, so be it. So let me live in a way to where I can honor him and that when death comes upon me, I enter into it with peace and joy. See, Christ has tasted death for us because he has destroyed the power of death over us. So we who believe, though our bodies may die, we shall live. 
right? John 11, 25, 26. The question is, do you believe this? And if you do and you trust is in Christ, you're a son of glory. Therefore, order your life appropriately, knowing that you live for eternity, not for this life, not for retirement, not for that next move, for that big house, for that big boat, you live for eternity. It's not that you can't have a nice house or a big boat. God blesses some people with those things to bless the body and to be used as, as, as means of encouragement. You can be wealthy. You can be those things as long as your goal, your focus is Christ and you seek to glorify him with all that you have and all that you do. So why does the son do all of this? Well, the author tells us in verse 16, he says, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember, he's been talking about angels uh, at the start of his argument, right? Angels help mediate uh, the old passage, the old covenants, and now the Son is the one who speaks to us, and it's not the angels, so we need to trust him. And so the Son is made like man because the Son, he's, he's not an angel. He's not, he didn't come to help angels. He came to help Abraham's offspring. Now, who are Abraham's offspring? Well, Paul tells us specifically in Galatians 3, 7. Know then it is that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it's those who believe in Christ. Though Jesus did taste death for everyone, only those who have faith in him are sons of Abraham, are sons of Yahweh, are brothers and sisters of Christ, and the sons of glory. The son, namely Jesus, became fully man in a wondrous, miraculous way. It's, it's why we celebrate Christmas every year. It's why we have our special Christmas Eve service every year, because of the incarnation. And he did so, so that he may help the offspring of Abraham, those of the faith, the elect, God's chosen people. The author then closes his exposition by circling back to his main point, which is the son's humanity and why it was necessary not only to take on flesh, but why he had to suffer as well. He does this in verses 17 through 18. He writes, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So the author is saying, therefore, for this reason, because of this fact, to help the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, the son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect and every way. And he did so in order, to, in order that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest. This is the first of 17 instances in the letter to the Hebrews that the high priest, that Jesus being our priest, is mentioned. But again, he's not just any high priest, right? There have been many high priests throughout history. But know how he describes this high priest, because he is the high priest that we need. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is merciful, one, because he has made a way for us, for man, to come to the Father. His compassion upon mankind to deliver them from their sin in itself is an act of mercy. But he's merciful, not only because of what he has done, but he's merciful because he understands. He sympathizes. He knows the feeling, the experience of what it means to be human. As verse 18 tells us, he himself has suffered when tempted. Therefore, he can help those who are being tempted. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, come on, how has he been tempted like me 
in every way. I mean, he lived in the first century. I live in the 21st century. I have computers. You see the way that people dress nowadays? You need the temptations that assail us? There's no way that he was tempted in every way as I am today. You misunderstand temptation and sin. Though the flowers may have different colors, the petals may look different. They all come from the same roots. They all come from the same plants. Though our temptations and sins, their expression of them may vary. The source is the same. The root is the same. It's idolatry. It's the lack of belief. It's the lack of trust. Again, this goes back to what the author was pulling from the Old Testament. What's the key thing? That Jesus trusted the Father. And who also trusts the Father? The sons of glory. The Son was tempted many times, not just in the wilderness, to cast aside faithfulness. Even in the garden, he was tempted to cast aside the will of the Father to go to the cross. But he didn't. He is faithful. If you want to know how Jesus felt in enduring such temptations, read Psalm 22. Read it. And you will hear the anguish of the Son. You will hear him fight and resist the temptation to cast aside the faithfulness that God has given him to be faithful. And it will tell you at the pinnacle what it was like for him, at the pinnacle of his suffering. We need to understand that when we are tempted, we often think, well, Jesus wasn't tempted perhaps like with the lust that I am tempted with. We, we tend to think of temptations and, and sins big picture. But how hard would it be for you not to sin in every little way that you normally sin? The little white lies, the little glances you give to people, the laziness that you allow yourself to get into willfully. See, Jesus didn't even do the littlest sin. He didn't even give into the littlest temptation. We allow the pressure of that temptation to ease every time we go, I don't need to read that fourth chapter or that third chapter of my Bible reading plan. I can sleep in a little bit longer. I can look at social media a little bit longer. I can do this. I don't need to call that brother or sister in Christ to encourage them. I'm, I'm, I'm tired or whatever it may be. We ease the pressure of temptation in our life a little bit by little bit. Jesus, he didn't. That pressure in his life was there from birth to death. And it kept on building. And it was never relieved until he died. When was the last time you were obedient to death? Clearly, if you're breathing, all of you, which I hope all of you all are breathing, none of you have, right? Not yet, anyway. But Jesus, he was. So he was tempted in every way. We must not make little. We must not think that we are tempted greater, that we are tempted in different ways, as if he cannot sympathize, because he most certainly can. And again, for your encouragement, Psalm 22, if you're unfamiliar with Psalm 22, read it. You will see Jesus on the cross. You will hear him on the cross. You will know the grace, the mercy, and the glory of God, and it will be an encouragement to your soul. Along with being merciful, Jesus is faithful. He's faithful because he accomplishes the work of the high priest. For some reason, people debate whether, well, does the author mean that he's faithful to us or if he's faithful to God? Well, it's both. If you're faithful to the people of God, you're being faithful to God, and you'll be faithful to God for the sake of the people. And if you're being faithful to God, you'll be faithful to his people, because that's how you're faithful to God. So it is both. He is faithful both to us and to God. And since he is faithful, he will not fail in his intercession on our behalf in our time of need. 
And he has not failed in the most important work of the high priest. And that is making atonement for our sin. Or as the author puts it, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, in short, that the Son, namely Jesus, he made atonement for the people of God. He removed, he eliminated any offenses, any impediments, any debts, any penalties, anything. He satisfied all of it. He removed all of it. Whatever gulf, whatever expanse existed between us and our Holy Father, he closed it. He tore the veil. He allowed us to a way into the Holy of Holies. This is how he brought many sons to glory. I mean, who do you think the glory is? The glory is that we're being brought to. It's the Father, right? How does, how does the Bible end? How does Revelation end? Heaven coming to earth, the new heaven coming to the new earth, the dwelling place of God coming to his people and dwelling among them. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ God was he reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And again in Colossians 1.21-23, Paul says, You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and sanctified and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Brothers and sisters, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's not merely man, nor is he only God. He is God. He is the God-man. He is holy, fully God. He is all that God is, but he's also fully you and I in every way except in our sin and in our corruption. He knows your aches. He knows your laments. He knows your sorrows. He knows your joys. He knows your delights. He knows what pleases your soul and, and warms you at night. He knows every tear and why every tear falls from your face. He knows your temptations. He knows the demons and the devil who desires to ensnare you and entrap you. And he most certainly, do not forget this, he knows your sin. Every single one. The one in word, the one in deed, the one in thoughts, the one that comes from your heart, the one that lies dormant in your heart. He knows it. And do you understand that? Do you believe that? That when you pray, you pray not to some abstract spiritual force. You're not praying to the conscience in your mind, the voice in your head, not to something that you don't know is actually out there. You're not praying to a distant God but you pray to a brother, a man, a person who has walked this earth, who has felt the cold wind, the heat of the sun, the roughness of soil, of dirt, of rock, knows what it's like to be hungry, knows what it's like to go without, knows what it's like not to have a home, knows what it's like to be rejected, hated, scorned, spit on, mocked, And he knows you, and he sees you, and he desires to be with you. This is why he came. This is why he suffered. He knows your sin, but it is because of the sin that he knows that is in you that he has come. And he has come because of your pain and because of the fallenness of this world. 
But in order to be one of the sons of glory, you must trust God in his grace. You must trust this Jesus. You must go to him in repentance, but not only in repentance. Once you come to him, you must not leave him. You must stay with him. You must hold fast to him. You must go to him in your time of need. Do not think that he died on the cross, brought you into the kingdom, and has told you it's time to buck up. You're on your own. No. He has brought you into the kingdom, and he will be with you on your journey. Not by yourself. He'll send brothers, sisters, and Christ, and he will comfort you. He will encourage you. So you need to remember that you are a son of glory, and he will treat you as such because he is not ashamed to call you a brother. So whether the temptations or pains come from within or whether they come from without, whether you fight the demons of the past or the demons of the present or the devil himself, go to Christ. He has suffered. He has been tempted as you and I in every way, even to the point of death, so that you may be delivered from death, delivered from sin. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast to that confession. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as you and I have been tempted, but yet he is without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that is found in the holy of holies, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your patience with us, for your faithfulness. We have sinned much. We have sinned often, even having tasted the goodness of the kingdom, the goodness of the gospel, knowing the truth that you revealed to us in your Son, and knowing your Son, we fall. Forgive us for our sins. Correct us, rebuke us, discipline us. Show us the way of repentance. Show us the path that you would have us walk. Keep us on the straight and narrow when we desire to go elsewhere. Elsewhere, do not abandon us, and we know you won't for your faithful we know that we have a great high priest who stands before you, who's at your right hand, who intercedes for us, Father. And we thank you that you sent him. We thank you that you have loved us enough to send your son to die for us. So, Father, we ask that your spirit, whom you have sent to dwell within us by the name of your son, that your spirit would edify, that your spirit would encourage us would fill us, that we would submit to your spirit, that we would walk in holiness, that we would be the sons, the daughters, the people of glory that you call us to be so that we could glorify you, but that we would know you as you desire to be known, not only in the age to come, but in this age. Help us to be the faithful witnesses that you call us to be, not just in word, Father, but in deed as well. May we not only proclaim the gospel, but may we demonstrate the power of the gospel by how we live with our neighbors, with lost ones, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have been patient with us and you've given us this morning to hear your word yet again. May not be the last time we hear your word. 
May we come to your word daily, regularly. May we meditate on it. Help us in that. Help us not to be lazy. Help us not to be distracted. But give us a passion, a desire for your truth, for your word from Genesis, from Revelation. Help us not to think that it is boring or dry or useless, but help us to know the life that it is. Help us to know the everlasting life that it gives. Father, we ask that you'd bless the table before us, the bread and the cup, as we come to it, that if anyone here is walking in a way that's unworthy, that you would convict us and that you would keep us from it and that we would seek reconciliation with those that we have an offense with or that we would seek reconciliation with you if we're holding on to a sin. But as we do come, for those of us who do come, may we be encouraged, may we be reminded that death is on our doorstep and that we are reminded of it because we proclaim the death of your son and we remember why he died. Let us be encouraged knowing that the work is finished, that he is the one who sanctifies us. He is not ashamed of us. He has started the work. He will see it through. Help us live the holy lives that we are called to live as we wait for his return where we will eat and drink with him at his table in the flesh, on the new earth, in the new heaven. Father, we ask all of these things for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.